You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Our children were young when we moved. The plan was to take them somewhere with opportunity, away from systems where consortiums dominated the landscape, an outer world planet where my ecosystem management training could pay the bills. Unfortunately, uh, newly terraformed planets don't have much in the way of ecosystems or people willing to pay someone to manage them. We quickly became poor. Worse yet, outer world communities are automatically in debt to whoever terraformed their planet. In our case, the terraformer was Astorian. Now, terraformers don't just want money, per se. Colorful Astorian brochures lay out generous, alternative payments that can be made to cut the principle. This quid quo pro comes in many forms. For example, there's always a market for healthy organs, or people willing to do near-light-speed travel, or work in the mineral-rich asteroid belts. But the most lucrative option is to become an M1 domestic, which even comes with a large cash bonus. Not everyone fits the profile. I did. So, after five years of working the meager farmland around our home, I say goodbye to my family and travel to Titan. I don't regret leaving, I regret how I returned. You can lose yourself in it. It's better if you do. That's what the attending psychologist told me the first time I saw Dr. Paris, the man who would become my son. He was sitting behind his lilac wood desk, watching the two dozen large view screens that populated the far wall and squealing with impish glee. I remember my arm twisted and wrenched back, my head clamped and my eyes forced open, a thick IV needle in my neck as I was forced to stare, stare, stare into his face. He didn't look back at me. His eyes were glued to a tablet sitting open on his desk. It was playing a compilation of extremely violent pornography. Videos of this nature were tradition in the Paris branch of the Hostorium family, taken every morning from early childhood just like vitamin D supplements, to ensure a strong stomach and an iron will. Dr. Paris was now 73 years old, gray around the temples. The M1 drug swam through my blood with the biological purpose of a salmon going upstream. Within seconds, the imprinting was complete. He was my beautiful child, and I, his mother. And that would never change.
you can lose yourself in it. It's better if you do. M1 was originally harvested to help sufferers of postpartum depression form deeper bonds with their biological children and as a clinical treatment for narcissism. Historium also saw market as a black market rave drug on the outer worlds. The problem is that M1 is finicky. A low dose is pleasurable, but a high dose is permanent. A sticky resin harvested from proto-lichen on a moon a thousand light years away. A miracle mistake of nature, that protein. It's shape a perfect fit for certain human cell receptors. It holds them like a mother cradles a child. Like a chamber cradles a bullet. I mentioned earlier that Astorium pays a substantial bonus to their M1 domestics. It's their main recruitment strategy. However, upon receiving the M1 dose, I was offered a chance to renounce my bonus, returning it to Dr. Paris. Some vague part of me remembered that I took this job to support my family, my real family, all those many light years away. But I simply could not find that part of myself anymore. Besides, Dr. Paris, my child, was right in front of me at that moment, burbling with happiness as another scream echoed from the tablet. How could I take so much money from my baby? I renounced the bonus. I wasn't alone. I discovered later that almost no M1 domestics have the stomach to accept the bonus. You can lose yourself in it. It's better if you do. There's no functional difference between an empath and a telepath. We convince ourselves that deep within the foaming sea of emotion there is a hard pearl of thought, of logic that guides our actions. And perhaps another species, one not raised in the captivity of community, can isolate their minds from their hearts. Not us. It took me time to learn Dr. Paris's behaviors, of course. No two people, even mother and child, can be perfectly aligned on first meeting. Which is why, on my first day of work, Dr. Paris had to break my wrist. That morning, the morning after the M1 had been first administered, I wheeled the coffee cart into Dr. Paris's office. Then, I hadn't been able to appreciate the sheer weight of the space. It was cavernous, with marble floors and high bookshelves that seemed to hold up the mock plaster ceiling, which was adorned with painted scenes of triumph from Paris family and Historium history. The only pieces of furniture were a massive desk of plutonian redwood and an antelope leather chair. The desk faced a massive view screen. In the chair sat Dr. Paris. He was watching a snuff film, something he did when he was stressed and his pornography wasn't enough. I parked the cart next to Dr. Paris's cane. He'd carried one since he was a young boy. A transport bomb planted by the Mickelson branch of the Hostorium family tree had left his legs shattered. The Mickelson patriarch was in the midst of an attempted coup, wiping out the scions of the other families on the board in order to consolidate his power. In this instance, they failed. Young Dr. Perry survived, and then, one by one, the Mickelsons fell prey to tragic accidents until the patriarch was found dead of a parent suicide in his off-world cottage. Dr. Paris kept the cane he'd been given during his recovery from the blast as a reminder of what he'd overcome. With just one alteration. It now had a weighted tip made from ironwood, which he used specifically for correcting the behavior of servants, such as myself. I understand why he did it. 
I had brought him his coffee, but made the critical mistake of obstructing his eyeline while the snuff film was playing. Without a word, the cane came down on my arm, spilling the coffee across the table. As I instinctively reached for the spilled mug, the cane came down again. I heard a sharp crack, followed by an annoyed... I clutched my wrist and slid down the front of the desk. The snuff film continued to play in front of me. I never had the stomach for them. I clenched my eyelids shut and tried to ignore the horrible mixture of sounds emanating from the screen. I was grateful Dr. Paris had hurt me so badly. It gave me something to focus on. When the film was over, he leaned over the desk to see me clutching my wrist, tears pouring down my face. Clean this up, mother, he said, and then go to the infirmary. The doctor injected me with stem cells and told me to get some exercise to keep the blood flowing. I started walking, more determined than ever to understand Dr. Paris perfectly. I refused to ever fail him again. The Paris estate stretched across an unknown number of acres above ground and an even more unknown number of acres below ground. As early investors in Hostorium, the Paris family had managed to secure a large plot as Titan was being terraformed. Have you ever been to Titan? It's a marvel of terraforming. Incredible weather, diverse wildlife, fertile soil. Everything grows on Titan, even things you never heard of. At first walk I took across the grounds I saw pineapples, kiwis, scarlet runner beans, lilac, birds of paradise, date palm, sugar maple. Every plant I'd ever seen in books about Earth, all the things we couldn't grow on the outer worlds. A shame, since Dr. Paris didn't even eat fruits and vegetables. Dozens of pollinating insects buzzed and flapped around my head. Tractive fungi sprouted from dead logs. Short-haired squirrels and reptiles frolicked together in the underbrush. I didn't have any qualms about calling it a paradise. That's what it was. I curled away from the gardens and re-entered the main house. For the first time, I took in the grandeur of the place. Dr. Paris wasn't really interested in art, but he hadn't taken down any of the antique sculptures or paintings placed by his ancestors. I stared slack-jawed at marble giants that loomed over me and stared back with blank eyes. My footsteps echoed down the halls. These chambers were strangely empty. I found out later that the other servants avoided me. M1 domestics can't be trusted because they can't say no to their employers. We're spies on a biological level. Or maybe they were just jealous of what Dr. Paris and I had. Either way, I didn't mind. Silence was welcome. I took the Grand Central stairs three at a time, working out some of my frustration. On the third floor, I came to a wide terrace paved with granite stones that sparkled in the augmented sunlight. An ancient rock-cut temple had been imported from an archaeological site on Earth and now squatted near the railing. From there, you could see the entire estate, all the way to the PSYOP facilities where Dr. Paris conducted his work. A light breeze wafted over me, and I felt a clammy wetness on my chest. I looked down. Two dark spots haloed my nipples. A mild, creamy sweetness reached my nose. I was lactating. They told me it would happen. I just didn't expect it so soon. I, I can't tell you how happy I was. 
M1 was telling me not to worry, not to doubt myself, that I would be a great mother for Dr. Paris. I worked harder than I ever had during the next few weeks. I became an expert in Dr. Paris. I don't just mean on his routines or his likes and dislikes. I studied the meaning of each wrinkle on his forehead. I learned the difference between an eyebrow raised three-quarters of an inch and one raised two-thirds of an inch. I knew when a meeting had gone poorly based on the thickness of the air outside his door. And the more I understood Dr. Paris, the more I lactated. I even began to use a breast pump. But still, I felt a distance between myself and my child. A gap that needed to be bridged. Then, one week, Dr. Paris required my assistance for 36 hours straight. He was preparing for a highly valuable and stressful PSYOP procedure and could focus on nothing but work. He bisected the massive view screen and played two snuff films at once, just as background noise. But even that couldn't lift his spirits. My heart ached for the poor boy. At dawn, I was serving him a cup of coffee when I felt the now familiar wetness on the front of my shirt. In the rush, I'd forgotten to use my pump. I was about to apologize to Dr. Paris, but he put up a hand. He stared at my chest. After a moment, he gestured me close and raised my shirt. My chest had once been flat and muscular from years of physical labor. M1 had changed that. A few minutes later, he pulled away and lowered my shirt. A final drop of milk dribbled down his chin. He caught it on his finger and licked it off. That will be all, Mother, he said turning back to his work. Now get out. <laughs> this was the missing piece. The final bridge I needed to cross. From then on, I nursed my child whenever he instructed. And each time was more fulfilling than the last. Now I didn't just know Dr. Paris. I understood him. I was his perfect mother. I knew when to bring him whiskey, when to play his snuffs when to nurse him, when he was about to have a temper tantrum. I knew all these things before he did. On days Dr. Paris had no need for me, he insisted that every drop of milk must be collected by his chefs. Dr. Paris mainly consumed red ground meat and ingested the rest of his nutrients from pills and powders. He hated vegetables with a passion and had since he'd been a child. Therefore, there were no vegetables allowed on his plate or in any of the compound's kitchens. The fruits growing on the estate were only eaten by staff or else rotted on the ground. Where the special chefs truly showed their skill was in the creation of his desserts. Milk products played a major role in the Paris menu. As much as he wanted his main courses to be the same each day, he also demanded a different dessert each night. And I, now filling my breast pump three times a day, supplied the milk for these desserts. I was the base for ice cream. Gelato, cottage cheese, chocolate truffles, cookie dough, cake batters, rosmalai, croissants, pastiche de nada, custards, puddings, and more. Tyus, it's good to see you. How is your son? I didn't like to leave Dr. Paris' side, but at his insistence, I had monthly checkups with a PSYOP psychic breeding team to ensure my mental state was stable. The team was housed deep within the PSYOP buildings on the edge of the estate. I caught snippets of conversation each time I visited. 
Sometimes a tech or assistant would show me a file they were working on. Tactical attachment wounding for company assassins. Triggered substance psychosis for middle management control. Implantation of child abuse memories to disorganize union efforts. I think they wanted me to be proud of them. In a way, I was. They spoke so freely around me because they knew that I mothered Dr. Paris himself, and therefore, I would never harm the PSYOP department. They were correct. Uh, could you repeat the question? I asked. My mind had wandered. The therapist sighed. I hope you do not ask Dr. Paris to repeat himself. Never. I was nauseous at the very idea. Well, continued the therapist, recall that I am in Dr. Paris's employ. I am an extension of him. Think of me as a limb. I nodded. Would you ever ignore a limb of Dr. Paris? Or even a single digit, a single molecule? I shook my head vigorously. Tears were burning down my face. How could anyone ever think that? I was a perfect mother. I would do anything for Dr. Paris. The therapist sat back and began flipping through my charts. Then the grim look on their face passed. They smiled. I see your osteoporosis is getting worse, they said. How is your lactation? About four cups every day. Well, that's very impressive. Very impressive indeed. A cis male producing four cups. The therapist handed me a tissue as they continued. Of course, all our best M1 domestics lactate continuously, but rarely to this extent. I blew my leaking nose and smiled proudly. Dr. Paris himself uses it in his morning coffee, I said. An honor, I'm sure. Well, everything else seems in order, said the therapist. We'll double your calcium supplements until the osteoporosis is under control. The therapist then looked me in the eyes for the first time since I walked in. Their gaze was professionally accusatory. It's necessary when your job is correcting psychological errors. Remember, he is entirely your responsibility. Anything he does is a reflection on you as a mother, they said. Guilt is natural. It is your body telling you that you aren't doing your job as a parent. You can always be doing better for him. You can always be doing more for him. I nodded. The therapist always ended our session with these words. Yes, I said. Yes, of course. I would do anything. Has Dr. Paris complained? Is there something more I can do? The therapist opened their mouth to say no. Then paused. They brought something up on their tablet and scrolled through it, comparing it to the notes they'd taken during the session. Their face was unreadable. Eventually they looked up, surprised to see me still sitting there. You may go, they said. I thanked them and left. When I arrived, Dr. Paris was enjoying a large creme brulee, perfectly caramelized, as he completed his evening tasks. Stacks of reports and tactical maps sat on his desk like watchtowers. His piece of the Hostorium Empire was physically small. PSYOP research and testing doesn't require planet-sized mining equipment or acres of modified foods or warehouses filled with munitions. His work moved mines, not mountains, and all Dr. Paris needed was his desk, his files, and endless hours of planning. I took my customary seat in the corner, awaiting instructions. 
From where I sat, I could see a small sliver of what he was working on. Astorium had tasked him with eliminating certain key players in rival business concerns. For PSYOPs, this rarely meant violence. Violence risked involving governments, militaries, and even other consortiums. Astorium had subtler techniques, developed and honed over hundreds of years, then perfected by Dr. Paris. PSYOP contractors would get close to targets, find jobs that put them in contact with the families. Once there, they would begin a slow process of trauma induction, manipulating individual members of the family with horrifying sights, sounds, and experiences that could never be traced back to Hostorium. When this worked, say, by causing a near-fatal car accident, a panic response could be triggered whenever Hostorium required. But it was a process that worked best on children. Hostorium preferred to conduct their grand operations on generational time spans. Pushing a child didn't just give Hostorium control of the child, it gave them a chance to bury something so deep it might never leave, impacting the lives of any children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that child might have. Remember that bastard prime minister of that bastard planetoid near Neptune? The one who didn't want to allow uranium mining? This was Dr. Paris speaking on a call the week prior. Turns out, 70 years ago, we'd given his bastard father a PTSD module with a 90% chance of alcoholism, 65% chance of corporal punishment. Astorium got everything they wanted. All they had to do was wait until tempers flared, then twist the lid off the bottle. My son was a brilliant man. I just wish he'd chosen a kinder path. But I suppose boys will be boys. All you can do is offer unconditional support even when their actions concern you. Which, I suppose, is why I agreed to his plan. After a few minutes of work, Dr. Paris seemed to notice my presence. Then he called me over and gestured me to a chair in front of his desk. I nearly ran to his side, thrilled to get some one-on-one -on -one time with my son. Dr. Paris took a long, slow taste of his creme brulee, eyes fluttering with pleasure. Mother, is this made from your milk? He asked. I nodded. I love it. That simple three-word sentence. <laughs> to care and love for a child is one of life's great joys. To have them recognize it is another. You've been with us how long? He asked. It felt like an entire lifetime. Three months, Dr. Paris, I said. Three months... He repeated, tapping his spoon against his chin. When I broke your wrist, did you feel any anger towards me? Any violent impulses? I was shocked. N no, of course not. Dr. Paris wrote something on a piece of paper. He spoke without looking up. What did you feel? I thought back, trying to remember. It had been such a minor event, really. Sadness. I wished I could have done something more for you. Embarrassment as well, because really it was my fault. Dr. Paris handed me the sheet of paper. It had a name, location, time, and date. He also handed me a photo of an eight-year-old child sitting astride a Tolumnian horse. Memorize this, he said. I did. Dr. Paris took the paper and the photo back from me. That is Maximilian von Escher. He is the second son to an obscure branch of my family. PSYOP agents have identified him as a potential usurper to my position. 
My heart skipped a beat. I felt like I'd been dropped into ice water. Then, pure, boiling rage welled up inside me. Nobody would harm my son. Nobody. Nobody, not ever. I blinked back furious tears. Then, as the rage swirled, Dr. Paris did something he'd never done before. He made direct eye contact with me. Mother, could you please kill him for me? On the appointed date, I made my way to a horseback riding camp on the sun side of Io. It was shockingly easy to get into the resort. In servants' clothes, you can go almost anywhere. In minutes, I was standing before the long, white door of room 208. I scanned the biometrics Dr. Paris had given me before I left. The door opened with a pleasing pneumatic hiss. And there, sitting on the floor and reading a book, was Maximilian von Escher. The rage frothed inside my head. Psyops had armed me for this mission. I pulled a large, blood-red pistol from my breast pocket and aimed it carefully. Just before my finger pulled the trigger, Maximilian looked up at me. His eyes widened. He pushed himself back against the wall. He wet himself. And still, I did not fire. As much as I hated this child for what he would one day do to my son, I could not pull the trigger. Furious at myself, I stepped into the room, brandishing the weapon, swinging it wildly back and forth, making Max scream as I did, trying to force my finger to move. Move, damn it. I was failing, Dr. Paris. Flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. A stampede of footsteps in the hallway. Max's screams must have alerted someone. Now was the time. My last chance. I raised the gun level with Max's forehead. But it wasn't Max's face that I saw. It was Dr. Paris as a brave little boy, weeping and screaming after the explosion that shattered his leg, but not his resolve. The gun fell from my hand the same moment the first guard's bullet entered my back. It took Dr. Paris three weeks to bribe enough Hostorium employees to get me out of the interrogation chamber. He told them I was a psychotic, a stalker who had accessed M1 illegally and become obsessed with the Von Escher family. He said PsyOps needed to study my twisted mind, figure out how I'd accessed the M1 drug in the first place. Once I was out of the institution, PsyOps backtraced my biometrics and suddenly my life had been wiped from existence. Nobody knew who I was, besides Dr. Paris and his closest advisors. They left me in the infirmary to recuperate. Three weeks since my assassination attempt, and each breath still uncorked gouts of agony. Getting out of bed was an impossibility. Worse than that was the shame. And the shame of being back in that gorgeous estate after failing my son so utterly. No torture could be worse. I wept ceaselessly. My weakened bones had been shattered in the scuffle, but I refused my calcium supplements. I did not deserve them. Both my eye sockets had been cracked, leaving me with black eyes so swollen and purple I could barely open them for weeks. The bullets had shredded my long intestines, so I'd been equipped with a colostomy bag. There was a strong chance it would be permanent. One day, I woke to find 
Dr. Paris sitting at my bedside. The apologies and tears came rushing out. He allowed me a few seconds of blubbering before the cane came down on my broken thigh. I quieted. You didn't fail me, mother, he said, chuckling. I knew you'd never be able to kill the boy. It was clear I didn't understand. Dr. Paris sighed and pulled a tablet from his jacket. He turned it to face me. It was filled with acronyms, equations, and diagrams that made no sense to me. Maximilian is indeed a possible threat to my position. Dr. Paris pointed to a data visualization that looked like a tangled spider web. But a full understanding of his psychological makeup shows that this could in fact make him invaluable to the PSYOP department. If, and only if, he can be controlled. Your attempt on his life, when taken as gestalt, was a perfect series of psychological triggers. Your clothes, the color of the gun, locate... Your clothes, the color of the gun, the location of the attack, even the time of day. All of this can be leveraged to control young Max once he's joined the PSYOP family. I nodded slowly. Dr. Paris was busying himself in one of the cupboards, searching for something. But, Dr. Paris, how did you know I wouldn't kill him? Oh, mother, of course you couldn't kill him. You thought of me when you leveled the gun to his face, didn't you? I nodded again. I hadn't told anyone that. Yes, I thought of you as a child, after that explosion that damaged your leg so badly. I couldn't do it after that. Dr. Paris chuckled as he retook his seat, now holding something I couldn't quite make out in his hands. I know, Mother. I know. Of course, the explosion, my leg injury, none of that ever happened. It's a story, just a useful bit of leverage for moments like these. Now then. Dr. Paris shook an empty breast pump in front of my face. I need my milk. I never meant to hurt my boy. I need you to understand that. It was another month before I was on my feet again. I now walked with a slight limp, a condition that Dr. Paris chose to leave me so I would be reminded of my duties to him with every step I took. It was another two months before I began to wonder if Dr. Paris had possibly made a mistake. Two months of morning snuff films, morning coffees, and occasional morning beatings. My body told me that this was normal and correct. The therapist at PSYOP told me it was normal and correct. And still, I couldn't shake the idea that something was not quite right. It was then that I remembered what Dr. Paris had said while I was in the hospital bed all those weeks ago. A useful bit of leverage. Why would he need leverage with me? Didn't Dr. Paris understand that he was my everything? If he'd wanted me to merely scare that child, I would have done it. He didn't need to manipulate me or push me. I was happy to do anything to support him. To push me away like that. It was a sign of deep sadness, I was sure of it. A giant empty office in that giant empty house on that giant empty estate. No children or grandchildren or visitors. I suddenly realized that I'd never known a man more alone than Dr. Paris. Which was heartbreaking, not because it was true, but because it wasn't. Didn't he understand that I was his mother? 
I wanted him to know that he could trust me, rely on me. It was so clear, so obvious that all he needed was some true perspective. The opportunity to step outside his busy mind, so full of brilliant plans and manipulations, and see clearly that he didn't need to waste time worrying about my loyalties. I wanted him to understand the love and dedication of a mother from the inside. I was a fool. M1 is fat-soluble. When taken, excess amounts of the drug will be expressed in the breast milk. As an M1 domestic, my first dose had been permanent, which meant that all additional M1 would be expressed. The math was simple. I just needed the M1. During my next visit to PSYOP headquarters, I was able to slip a vial off a lab bench. I hated to steal from Dr. Paris, but if you only saw how many vials they had, all destined to be shipped across the galaxy, I was certain Hostorium would never notice. That night, I used a syringe from the infirmary to inject the M1 into my arm, trusting my long sleeves to cover the evidence. It was strange to feel the M1 enter my bloodstream with no effect, besides the discomfort of a needle in my arm. The brain receptors it usually sought out were already full. It had nowhere to go. The next morning, I carefully pumped two cups of my breast milk into a silver creamer and added three tablespoons to Dr. Paris's morning coffee bringing it to a caramel brown. Not enough M1 to be permanent, not nearly. Just a one-tenth dose, enough to provide a twenty-minute experience. Here you are, son, I said, placing the cup in front of Dr. Paris. He didn't reply. He was focused on a particularly complex psychological manipulation for Hostorium. An interplanetary labor alliance was brewing in one of the systems they controlled. Multiple tablets were scattered across his desk. He had been working on the problem for weeks, yet no resolution was on the horizon. His enemies in Hostorium were starting to whisper that Dr. Paris wasn't the man for the job. Each morning since this project began, Dr. Paris had foregone his usual pornography and moved straight to his snuff film. Each morning he added another film to the screen, trying to settle his increasingly broken nerves. Slowly, like a motion picture mosaic, the large view screen on his wall was being populated with death. That day, when I looked across the room, I saw twenty-five snuff films playing simultaneously. Nearly all of them featured Dr. Paris as executioner. I looked away. I know my son was a good boy, but sometimes he did bad things. I stood next to the desk, waiting for him to take the first sip. He needed to see me right after taking the drug or the imprinting wouldn't take effect. Dr. Paris threw a tablet across the room, shattering it on the marble floor. I flinched. I'd been so focused on my plan I hadn't noticed how frustrated he'd become. He wheeled on me. What the fuck are you still doing here? I tried to smile. I brought your coffee. Dr. Paris picked up the cup and hurled it at my head. I didn't duck, knowing it was my fault this was happening. I'd fallen asleep at the wheel. I should have prevented this. Dr. Paris walked up close to me and jabbed my right breast. His eyes were on fire. Get out, you disgusting cow. He spat. Get out, or I swear I'll kill you. The coffee was sprayed across the floor. My plan had failed, so I left. Dr. Paris locked the door behind me. 
Twenty minutes later, I heard a terrible howling through the door. By the time I'd broken through, Dr. Paris was already dead. The 25 snuff film still played on repeat. Dr. Paris was... unrecognizable. On the floor by his desk, I found the creamer. Empty. A single drop of my milk still in Dr. Paris's beard. I can only imagine what my son experienced. Even a lifetime of conditioning cannot stand up to a full dose of M1. You can lose yourself in it. It's better if you do. I've relived this moment for him a thousand times. It's the most terrible punishment I can inflict on myself. And so I have to do it again and again, even though it will never make up for what I did. In the moment that the M1 hits, I am Dr. Paris, and I'm standing in my office. I am frustrated with my work, and so I focus on the soothing snuff films on the view screen. My eyes are drawn to one of the ones I made myself. I see a man hooded and strapped to a chair. I see myself reaching for my tools. I see the first blade cut flesh. But instead of serenity, something else boils up inside of me. The desire to protect. Because, you see, that hooded man being cut and stabbed with surgical precision precision meant to keep him alive as long as possible. That man is my son. And I try to avert my eyes, but only find another screen with another one of my beautiful children in agony, an agony that I know will end in death. So I look away to another screen where another son has already been decapitated, and I'm grateful when my eyes blur from tears, but I can't stop looking. I can't. They need me. My children, my beautiful, dying children, all of them being killed by me. And now I'm screaming with rage and trying to smash through the screen with my cane to stop myself from doing these things to my own flesh and blood. And when my cane breaks through, I throw it away, and now needle-like shards of luma glass are lodging themselves point-first in my skull, and I'm still smashing my head into the towering screen again and again, weeping and roaring as the shards drive deeper, and I'm trying, trying, good God, I'm trying to get through the glass and stop myself, destroy myself before I do any more damage to my perfect sons and daughters. Then, somehow... I'm through the three-inch thick screen and it breaks at last and goes dead. And confused, horrified, I'm looking around for some other way through. And then, in the black glass of the dead view screen, I spot him. It's the killer, reflected in it. His face transformed by blood. But it's him, all right. I recognize him. I know him. And a mother's instinct just takes over. A mother's rage. And suddenly I have one of the long shards gripped so tightly in my hand that it's down to the bone. And I'm stabbing and ripping with it. And in the glass, the last thing I see with a fierce sense of righteousness is him. The killer of my children, with his throat ripped open to the spine. But in that last moment, the killer is my son as well. And in that heartbeat of unbelievable pain and loss... It all goes black forever. 
When the family doctor arrived, he found me collapsed on the floor next to Dr. Paris's mangled body. It was days before I was sensible, at which point I was immediately removed from the premises and put on a transport. My contract with Hostorium had ended when Dr. Paris died. Either I was never a suspect, or perhaps Dr. Paris has enemies who still want me alive. And regardless, I was allowed to leave Titan and return to my homeworld. My old family. When I first arrived back on my home planet, where the sky is as blue as Dr. Paris's eyes and the clouds as white as Dr. Paris's hair, I wept every night for the loss of my child. My family were frightened of me, of how my mind had changed. They don't recognize me. I did not eat and rarely slept. My calcium supplements lay unused in the bedside drawer. The osteoporosis left me brittle and weak. They pushed me to see a local healer. We have minor irrigation machines, some small agricultural tools, a basic collection of medical supplies and staff. We don't have PSYOP employees to take care of our psychological well-being. We make do. The healer always meets me on the banks of a small pond outside the settlement. She is a small woman with closely cropped hair. She laughs easily the few times I've made jokes. But when I tell her about my experiences with Dr. Paris, she is very quiet. She is listening and thinking. We spend our time together walking around the pond. I can't remember the last time I've been outside in nature. One day, after a few meetings, she asked me if I felt guilty. I told her I did. She asked me if I could change what had happened. I told her I could not. We were quiet for a long time after that. Just walking around the pond. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Visit today at patreon.com slash the wrong station. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is you tune into the show. This week's episode, Mother's Milk, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Braden Gordon, Cadence Ann, Milena, Skull Ape, Shane Edwards, Bailey R., Simon Dainty, Cohen Perry, Kwame Essia, Steph Pena Manilow, and Void Oculus for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alain Citron, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on social media, at The Wrong Station, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.